This episode of The Minimalist is brought to you by nobody, because... My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are The Minimalists, live in Chicago. We have a special treat for you tonight. He is your hometown hero. You know him from Netflix. You know him from... Revolution of One. You know him from the Minimalist podcast. Some people even call him the third Minimalists. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, our good friend, T.K. Coleman. <laughs> T.K., you've gotten into trouble recently. Wait a minute, man. What's up, Chicago? <laughs> Home of six NBA championships. Home of six World Series titles. Come on now. Y'all gotta be proud of that. We talking about, we combining the Cubs and the Sox because we ain't got time for black on black crime, right? Home of five Stanley Cup titles, come on. And the only Super Bowl title that ever really counted, so. What's up, God? Oh, TK, I've been waiting for tonight because uh, this is your first appearance since um, Trouble found you. Yeah, man. Can you talk about this publicly, or is it too soon? No, I'd be happy to because I got so many people that I love and care about who want to know what happened, and I got to tell the story like 50,000 times. So if I can just tell it once in public and get it over with, that'd be even better. Yeah. So it's funny because my, my brother Kamau is here, and, um, you know, Kamau and I work together, and at work we always say things like, hey, man, let's write that down, let's document that, you know, so, you know, if we get hit by a bus or something, you know, we got everything together. And, and we're not going to say that anymore. We both agree that we're never going to say that anymore because I literally got hit by an SUV, and uh, it's a miracle that I'm sitting here today. Um, I'm so blessed. So um, the best part about having something unfortunate happen to you is, you get a lot of love and support, but there's always like one or two people that ask you some victim blamey kind of questions. I, I literally had one dude who was like, hey man. What were you wearing? <laughs> no, 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 he, he literally says, you weren't wearing all black, were you? Oh my goodness. <laughs> you were asking for it, TK. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so if I, if I say yes to that, then it's like, I chose to be hit by a car for wearing all black. Um, it's bad enough to be black, but now I'm in trouble for wearing black. Walking while wearing black. So, it's tough, man. Uh, and another guy was like, uh, I mean, you, you look both ways when you cross the street? Like, yeah, I know how to cross the street. <laughs> Actually, though, when I was in fifth grade, so I went to school in Westchester, Illinois, Divine Infant, a small little Catholic school. I got some DI people here. What's up, DI? So um, I was talking too much in gym class, and the teacher at that time, Mr. Trumbull, he says, your punishment, Mr. Coleman, is you're gonna write a one-page paper on pedestrian safety. I didn't know what the word pedestrian was, but I was like, this dude's trying to mess with my head right now. Like, 
He's making me write that paper just to give me a hard time. I was like, I'm gonna fix him though. I'm just gonna BS my way through it. I looked up the word pedestrian and so I, I just like BS my way through the paper and did my punishment. They say that when you have a brush with death, your life flashes before your eyes. In this moment, all I could think about was Mr. Trumbull saying, you're gonna write a paper on pedestrian safety. And I heard myself go, I don't need to know anything about that. And in that moment, I'm like, God, I'm sorry, just give me one more chance. No, okay, so here's what happened. My wife and I had taken an evening walk. We typically do this every night after dinner. And we're, we're crossing this intersection where the people who turn left onto this intersection are getting onto the highway. So they're usually accelerating. Knowing how to cross the street, you know, we check out our way and proceed cautiously. But sometimes variables happen. And so this was one of those nights where somebody was wrong faster than I could be right. And I don't know what she was focusing on, what she was doing, um, but she made a left turn and just went for it. And faster than the speed of thought, by the time I could turn and realize what was happening, I just feel my body smacking against a car. And you can have a lot of thoughts in half a second, a lot of thoughts in half a second. And one of those thoughts was, this is definitely not happening. This is about to stop and I am going to yell at this person and just walk away with some bruises. It didn't stop, she kept going, she drugged me, and I'm trying not to go under the car, because I, I know I'm going if I go under that car. And everything else from that moment is a blur, and now I switch over to my wife's recounting of what happened. According to my wife, the driver didn't know that she hit me. She didn't hear the thud. She was in an SUV, and you know, um, they make these cars kind of quiet, right? They're not designed to make it easy for you to know you hit something. And um, so she was responding to my wife screaming a couple of times. So she, cause she kept driving and she was gonna run me over. She responds to my wife screaming like, what's going on, what's going on? And she gets out and she's like, oh my God, I didn't see him, I didn't see him. And there's another guy who comes over and he's trying to work with me, trying to you know, keep me conscious, ask me my name and stuff like that. I, I hear commotion, I hear no noises, but I'm, I'm out for the count. And EMT comes and uh, they put me on a stretcher. They, they, they take me away, right? My wife stays back at the scene. I'm in the ambulance and as we're, we're on our way to the hospital, I, I wake up at some point and I'm just like freaking out, like where's my wife? Where am I? You know, let me go, let me get out of here. We're, we're supposed to go for a walk. And um, one of the guys says to me, he goes, hey, 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 slow down, slow down. He's like, you took a pretty good hit. I was asking you some pretty basic questions. I wanted to know your name. I'm asking you yes or no questions. I'm not happy with the way you're responding to me. It's possible you could have a concussion. I can't just let you go. And your body's lacerated. You may have some internal bleeding and so on. So we gotta check you out. And, and I'm, I'm in a lot of pain and I'm, I'm asking for drugs and they're like, you know, no, nah, you can't have any drugs. And I mean, they pretty much treated me like I threw myself in front of the car to get some drugs. I'm like, man, I'm in pain. I didn't ask to be in this truck. I'm not trying to get drugs, but I'm trying to get drugs. And I probably was begging for it so desperately I made myself look like an addict. Like, I just need some drugs, man. And they wouldn't give me any drugs. So I'm hurting it. So we, we go to the hospital and, um, you know, they, you know they, they run like a few CT scans on me to check for head trauma, face trauma, ab trauma. I'm so lacerated and I'm just like bleeding and I'm really hurting and um, luckily, tests came back negative for no head trauma, tests came back negative for no internal bleeding, tests came back negative for no bones broken. I was just, I had a lot of tissue damage and I was just really hurting. 
and they told me that I'm gonna be in pain for a while, but the ER said, we've seen a lot of situations like this, you're very lucky, I've seen so much worse and it usually ends worse for you. So if you want an interesting miracle story, February 2nd, 2022, I was received into the Catholic Church and I had confirmation, first communion, okay? A lot of people gave me some gifts, yeah, okay, there we go. We can represent, we can represent, those who know, know. And people gave me like some rosaries as a gift. Some people gave me like some little prayer cards with pictures of saints and things like that, right? Well, one of the gifts I got was something called uh, the brown scapular. And it, it's sort of like a, it kind of looks like a, like a necklace, if you will, that has a front part and, and hangs on the back as well. And I didn't know what it was. I'd never seen anything like that before, but it says a sign of protection. And so it caught my eye. And, um, you know, shortly before the accident, I actually said, this looks kind of cool. I want to look into this and see what this is. So I watch a YouTube video and I hear a priest say that when you wear the scapular, it's, it's designed to be kind of like a yoke that says you are God's possession and that you have God's protection. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I could use a little protection, right? And so I, I put the uh, brown scapular on. Now, the night that accident happened, because they didn't want to move my body because they were afraid of my neck, my back, they literally cut all of my clothes off while I was out. And I even had a bracelet on that was pretty easy to remove, and I was kind of annoyed because they cut that off. They could have just pulled it off, but they cut that off, and the bracelet was damaged. I was pretty mad about that. I should have been happy to be alive, but I'm mad about a replaceable <laughs> bracelet because uh, that's how I am. But so when I woke up, all you could see was this sexy black chest and a brown scapular. That was it. That, that was all they left on me, man. And so I, I just take that as a sign that, um, that somebody was looking out for me, man. Yeah. And um, it wasn't yeah. luck. It was a miracle. Oh, dude. So, yeah, man. I'm so glad you're here with us, man. And by the way, we're all like that. Getting mad at the little things. <laughs> the um, TK, you and I were talking on the phone shortly after this happened. And I remember... Ryan, what was that? January 2014. This very similar thing happened to Ryan. He was, he was run off the road in Washington State. His car flipped several times. And um, the thing I said to you, the same thing I said to him right after that, you know, I'm so grateful you're here. But everything after this is, is bonus time at this point. But the truth is, that's true for all of us here tonight. You know, anything could have happened that would have not allowed us to be here right now. And you all chose to spend your most precious resource with us tonight. I mean, yeah, you spent some money to come in here too, but your time and your attention, and that's not renewable. There's no refund on misspent attention. And so, yeah, I'm really grateful you're here, but everything after this, let's make it count. Let's make it count tonight, and let's make it count after this. Amen. I see some folks with some questions. Howdy. What's your I, name? I'm Brooke, and hey, Brooke. I grew up Brooke. on the south side of Chicago. Right. Uh, former librarian, but I've done a lot of things. I've worked in the photo industry, lots of things. And um, so anyway, over the last few years, I've done some serious research on the fact that 70% of the population of the United States is living on 50,000 or less. 70%, and that is according to Pew Research. Yeah. I have a master's degree from UW-Madison and was in the library field for about 25 years. Um, so what that means, and that's for one or more people, 
Right now, there's a serious thing happening in society. I'm watching the trends. I'm talking to news guys. These are my friends. And um, people are moving to granny flats, conversion vans, tiny homes. I've seen tent cities. When I drove to across the state of Illinois to get my COVID shot, I was almost in Missouri, so I thought, well, I'll go to, uh, you know, across the border. I ended up driving to Kansas City, not realizing it was all the way across the state, and I'm coming from Evanston, Illinois. So I drove 1,200 miles in a weekend, wow. car camped. It was awful. Crunched up in a car, oh. and, and then I got my period on top of it. It was really bad. You should write a book. Oh, my car I'm, trip and my period by Brooke. I'm, I'm second city trained on top of it. So, oh. so anyway, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And they're nice people. They're really nice people. But what I'm really concerned about is this constant spending and people thinking that they're not enough without money. Mm. I go to a cafe every single day where million and billionaires go. It's 20 minutes from my house. Sometimes they order something. Sometimes they bring something from someplace else. The place is basically a lemonade stand for the owner because I really shouldn't be saying more about this, but that's not his only source of income. We'll just say that. The long and short is unless you are playing Monopoly, buying up real estate, and having multiple income streams, or lowering your spending, you're fucked. What you're talking about, what Robert Reich is talking about, you guys are mensches. It's a Jewish word for highly ethical, highly spiritual people. My way of living, I'm looking at living backwards. In other words, we're all gonna die. What do we need in the end? And on the outside, we think that people have this thing that we need to get to because they have more money or more stuff. But you don't know how pe people's insides and outsides often don't match. And I'm looking at that because I've studied many different fields. So I'd like you guys to speak to that whole issue. Yeah. You know, just that. Like the, what you see other people have is, mm -hmm. may not be what you want. Yeah. Yes, and unfortunately, quite often we get, this happened to me in um, my 20s. You know, Ryan and I grew up really poor. We were on food stamps, government assistance, and like, oh, well, clearly the problem is we don't have any money. That's why we're not happy. And so we climbed the corporate ladder throughout our 20s, working 60, 70, 80 hours, sometimes 90 hours a week, and, and climbed that corporate ladder. By the age 30, we had achieved everything we ever wanted. And it turns out that everything we ever wanted wasn't actually what we wanted at all. In fact, you see, you get these things. You get the oversized house with more toilets than people. You get... You get the uh, Lexuses, Lex I. Um, you get multiple luxury cars. You, you get these things that you think are going to make you happy. And the problem with that is we get really confused about happiness. We, we confuse pleasure with happiness. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. It's a wonderful byproduct of living a meaningful life. Nothing wrong with happiness. The thing that's making us miserable, though, is it's in the founding documents of this country. Life, liberty, those things are great. The pursuit of happiness. That's half great. Happiness is awesome. But the pursuit is making us miserable because we're pursuing it externally. And if you want to begin to let go of anything, it really starts with understanding that the default state is not discontentment. That's what marketers and advertisers and media have told you. 
You are inadequate. You can make yourself adequate by buying, by purchasing, by spending your way to success, fulfillment, satisfaction. But no. You can buy things that amplify your life, enhance your experience of life, but happiness is the default state. We merely cover it up with these mimetic aspirations, with these desires for the things that other people tell us we should want, as opposed to the things that are actually going to serve our life in a meaningful way. Can I comment? Of course, yeah. I, I think people are confused that they think there's two forms of currency. And um, my daughter just got into a, a selective school, and we just found out today she's going to New Haven. And I thought, okay, well, great, but they don't, do they have a happiness program? That's what I want to know about, and a spiritual program. Good for her, though. I'm, I'm proud of them. But people think it's money and grades. Like, you, you buy your way into a whatever, corporate ladder job, you're a partner at a law firm, you hate your job, you want to kill yourself, you get yourself into a select Ivy school, 152,000 kids at eight Ivies, 400 Americans control the wealth of this country, 150 million people. All the papers are run by 15 billionaires. I've done the research, large and small, it's even happening in my town. I, I yeah. should really be quiet about this. but. But anyway, um, so, but I think that there's neurotransmitters, neurochemicals, that's another, a third form of currency, and love and loving kindness. Because at the end of the day, money and grades are not gonna hug you in a hospital. It's not gonna fuck your brains out when you wanna be loved. I mean, to be really blunt about this. So, like, what do you really need at the end of the day? Like, what do you want? Yeah. I've been loving you wrong the whole time, Josh. <laughs> oh, shit. All I, the sexual just, tension on the stage <laughs> is so thick right now. I just, I just want to say real quick, if you see me wincing up here, it's because I cracked a rib, and it, I love to laugh, but it like hurts to laugh. Has anyone ever called you a mensch? A what? A mensch. Okay, so someone called me a mensch one time, and I'm like, how dare you? I didn't even know what it meant. What is it? It's like, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, actually, it's a huge compliment. But she, she had said that earlier, and it's just funny. I don't know if you've heard of the word mensch, but yeah. So it sounds like a pejorative, doesn't it? Like, it sounds, but it's not. It's a, it's a huge compliment. So thank you for that compliment. That's amazing. Highly ethical people. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, mensch. Oh, man. Um, when it comes to grades and money, I think people are looking for shortcuts to happiness. I know Josh and I were. That's, that's what we were looking for, this shortcut to happiness. Mom and dad didn't make any money, and they were always complaining about money. And, well, I just know that if I had that Nintendo or if, I had, if mom had that, you know, the, the, the car she wanted or the house that she wanted, then everything would have been perfect. And I think that's where we fall into the trap because that's just what we do as human beings. Like, we look for the, short, the shortest route to contentment, and we see that through money. We see that through get grades. But yeah, I agree with you. Like the way we get there is is uh, it is with it's it's with happiness. The question is, is how do you get to happiness? And that's a whole that's a whole different conversation. What do you, what do you got, TK? You could you could talk in this way better than I can. Well, I, I heard these uh, two dudes talking about aliens one time, and um, <laughs> was this me and you talking about? It? <laughs> <laughs> like, where's this brother going, man? Um, but th they were talking about how if if extraterrestrial life existed and they engaged in interstellar travel and they arrived at Earth, 
chances are they, their mathematics, their knowledge of science, their engineering would be far more advanced than ours. And so they probably wouldn't be impressed by our intellectual achievements, by our technology and so on. But the thing that would fascinate them most about the human race would be our music, our theater, our choreography, our comedy, our art, because it's our creativity that distinguishes us from the other species. It's not that we have capacity for such great mathematical and scientific intelligence. It's our sense of wonder. It's our imagination. It's our ability to live with a sense of possibility. When we are creative, we are most fully human. And the world gives us a message that says, you are what you possess. And if you are what you possess, then that means you are what you consume. And so people chase after happiness by trying to acquire more things because they believe those things will give them what they want the most. But what we want the most is the experience of feeling alive. And the way that we get that is by bringing a sense of imagination and wonder to the things that we do and experiencing the magic that happens when we contribute to the world, when we leave the world different than it was when it got here, which is why when people are depressed, one of the most helpful things that they can do is to find someone else who is in need and serve them. There's an economist named John Kay who has an excellent book called Obliquity, and Obliquity is the concept of going about getting what you want by taking the opposite path. So what's the best way to make money? Not by trying to get people to give you some, but by trying to solve problems and create value for people. What's, what's the best way to make friends? Not by trying to get people to be your friend, but by being friendly to someone else. What's the best way to be happy? Not by chasing after happiness. After all, as C.S. Lewis says, a man who measures how quickly he's falling asleep is likely to remain awake all night. So you don't get happy by chasing after happiness, but by looking for other human beings who need your help, who need what you have to offer, and contributing value to them. Um, the civil rights leader, Howard Thurman said, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive. For that is what the world needs, people who have come alive. How do we become happy? By being fully human. How do we become fully human? Not by trying to get more stuff to impress people that we don't like, but by bringing our best selves to ordinary moments and transforming those ordinary moments into extraordinary activities by just bringing our unique form of magic. And when you make a difference in other people's lives, you'll say, man, that does so much more for me than any possession. That's why you appreciate things that you buy more when you have to work hard for them because consumption only fulfills when it occurs within the context of creative self-expression. Howdy, what's your name? Hello, so my name is Dana Molly, hailing from Naperville, yeah. Illinois. Hey, Dana. Originally hailing from Virginia Beach, Virginia. All right, figured what's on I'd your get mind? A, a few less from uh, Virginia, but so I'm here with a neighbor. Hi, Rupal. And my question pertains to a different neighbor. So I've become like agent zero in my neighborhood for uh, pushing your cultish <laughs> minimalism. We go on walks and we talk about you guys and then we end up here at your live shows. Welcome to our cult, everybody. Hello. So it's a very accepted, received cult. So I got a text from Paula, different neighbor, not Rupal. Um, and Paula, uh, a couple of days ago, she said, hey, I'm having trouble. I'm on the 30-day challenge. I'm on like day 26. It's getting tough. She doesn't have kids even. <laughs> She's 
like, what do I do? And I said, drawers, go for drawers. Look in your drawers, there's little things. So I'm asking you Paper guys. clips. Paper clips. She's having 30 paper clips on day 30. <laughs> She she's, talking, she's referring to the 30-day minimalism game. Um, I won't go through all the de- details, but you can find the details on our website, theminimalists.com slash game. It's free to play. You partner up with a friend, family member, coworker. You start getting rid of some stuff. It starts off really easy. But by day 26, you're figuring out how many paper clips can I get rid of. Yeah. So I offered her my tips, and then I figured, well... You guys must have some tips. And I feel like in all the podcasts that I've heard, I, haven't, I mean, maybe they're in there and I've forgotten. Sure. But we're coming up on a new month Yeah. on Sunday. So maybe yeah. you guys have some end-of-the-month tips for people. Yeah. Man, uh, I think Mariah and I are going to play next month. We haven't played in a while. Okay. And, like, it's, even as one of the minimalists, my, my uh, junk drawers, like, start to become a little too junky. And... Uh, yeah, you accumulate things. You have no idea where they come from. Oh, man, you know what I like best about this story? It has nothing to do with the 30-day minimalism of the game. It's how awesome of a relationship you have with your neighbors. That's freaking incredible. Hey, it's, an, it's an amazing small town. It's called Saybrook. Yeah. When we moved in, there was like a garden club that showed up with two flowers, and the neighborhood directory was like a throwback neighborhood. So, yeah, That's we cool. fell into it. Very fortunate to be there. That's awesome. Thank That's, you, Saybrook. Like that right there, is that's uh, you know living a meaningful life, knowing who your neighbors are, and then they reach out to you. They're like, "Hey, I need help," and you want to help them out. Um, man, it is. Uh, that's unfortunately not the norm these days. I can't tell you. I'll have this conversation that I'm having with you about neighbors with friends, and they're like, "I've never even met my neighbor." I'm like, "How long have you lived there?" I've lived there for five years. I'm like, "You've never met your neighbor after five years?" So that's that's incredible. Um, how do you get rid of more stuff, Josh? <laughs> Well, I mean, so, so whenever Bex and I play, we just get rid of Ella's stuff. It's really easy to get your kids' stuff. You should have told her to go to the kids' things. Yeah. No, I mean, the, that's the thing about the game. If you, minimalism is not about deprivation. So we don't want to get rid of things that add value to our lives, right? And so I, I think that's a, a key component here. When we think about letting go, we had someone come up to us at one of our events once and say, it seems like you guys didn't get rid of anything important. And Ryan looked at him and said, uh-huh. <laughs> like, that's the whole point. The problem is the average American household has 300,000 items in it, and most of it is junk. We have a, another rule, and we have a, something called the Minimalist Rule Book. It's free to download at our website. But there are these 16 rules for living with less. They're peppered throughout Love People Use Things as well. And one of them is called the No Junk Rule. And everything you own fits in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential, or it's junk. And so if I'm getting down to that point where I'm really trying to figure out is most of the things aren't essential in our lives. Food, clothing, shelter. But most of the things are non-essential but value-adding that we want to hold on to. Like, yeah, I could live without a couch or a coffee table or dining table. I'd be fine. But those things actually serve me in some way. They enhance my life in some way. We are not the deprivationists. We're not monks. We're not ascetics. I find some value in different ascetic practices and austerities, but ultimately, I want to own the things that serve me. The problem is most of the things we own fit in that third category. They're junk. And that junk is actually covering up a lot in our lives. Our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So we start dealing with that external clutter, we start looking at all this other new clutter in our lives. 
mental clutter, spiritual clutter, emotional clutter, financial clutter, relationship clutter. And so by letting go of these things, that's not the point. It's to be able to start looking inside and seeing that clutter and sorting through that. And that's when we start to uncover that happiness that we talked about earlier. Thanks for your question. Thank you. And the 30-day challenge is originally how I found you guys from a friend that shared it on Facebook. So thanks oh, for doing that. Awesome. And oh, thank uh, you. thanks for your messages. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Josh, can I throw something in there, man? Love to, yeah. I, 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 think there's, I think the greatest sin is that of being too serious. And being too serious isn't just about the inability to laugh at a good joke. It's also about the tendency to make a religion out of everything, to approach everything that we do as if it's a matter of life and death. And when we do that, we lose our sense of playfulness. And when we lose our sense of playfulness, we lack the creative thinking necessary to be productive, which is kind of the paradoxical thing. We are most productive when we are playful. Um, James Kars wrote an excellent book called Finite and Infinite Games. And one of the things he says there is that he who must play cannot play. Whenever you do something out of a sense of duty and obligation, you kind of lose the looseness and the flexibility and the swagger that makes it fun and that allows you to be you know, really productive with that activity. So what I would say is the minimalism game, remember that it's a game. It's not a religion, it's a game. And so you wanna find a way to play the game that actually feels good to you. And if you find yourself being compulsive and doing something because it's righteous or doing something because it's better than what other people are doing, you're kind of losing your way and it, and it becomes a little hard to think. So a couple of ideas to make something playful could be you take like 10 items that you could possibly conceivably live without. You invite a friend over and say, all right, these items are fair game. You get to pick one that I get rid of, all right? A second thing that you could do is you could look at your items not as objects that you have to get rid of, but you look at the items and you say, all right, who is someone that might appreciate that if I gave it to them? So now you're not getting rid of things, you're actually making other people's lives better by finding things that you already have that they might appreciate if you gave to them. Those are just a couple of ideas, but it's less about the ideas and it's about the way that you generate the ideas. You always wanna generate your ideas from a mindset of playfulness because that's when you're free and you don't have anything to lose because you're playing the infinite game. Howdy. What's your name? Hi, I'm Jesse Jones. Um, hey, Jesse. South Bend, Indiana. Ah, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming out. Um, I'm here just to say thank you. Aww. You've provided immense value to my life. It's changed considerably in the last six years, um, so much that um, I'm a stay-at-home mom of three kids. I felt like my life was just picking up stuff and moving it around the house. Um, so of course I ran into your documentary and Patreon supporter, you're like your weekly part of my life. So like big brothers to me, I love it. Um, and I've provided space in my life that since the pandemic hit, I've weekly um, volunteered at the food pantry in my uh, community. I manage their unity garden, um, which is like unbelievable when you have kids under eight years old, but getting rid of all of the excess has really made room for me to contribute beyond myself. So thank you, and since I'm such a good volunteer, they actually pay me now to be an assistant to the missions director, and they want me to take over her job eventually. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so my question is, even though I feel like I wanna throw up right now, 
I know I'm putting myself in an uncomfortable position, but I want to, um, how do I move forward when I have this creative space and potential for the future um, to help people in need? Um, you know, I'm passionate about minimalism, but I do feel like now, as I serve people at the food pantry, I've acquired this tattoo on my arm, and yeah, it's, it's very noticeable. Yeah, very noticeable. And so now I have people that I'm serving in the cars, like, wow, that's really beautiful. Like, that must cost a lot of money. Like, what? You know? And there's this barrier where I feel like, yes, but like I've made room in my life. You know? There's this gap where I feel guilty and. How do I share my experience with people that, you know, I didn't come from that sort of a background, um, and I have compassion for them, but I feel like, can I share this, that my unintentional part of my tattoo is, hey, wow, you have this really beautiful thing, how did you get that? You know what I mean? Like this step forward to say, hey, let me tell you about how I got here. Like, any thoughts? Yeah, for sure. A couple things. One is, you're not required to explain yourself to anyone, and, and most of the time, people aren't looking for an explanation anyway. <clears throat> the second thing I'll say is money is not inherently evil or bad, uh, and so, yes, a tattoo costs money. This microphone costs money. It is an exchange of value, right? Um, the, we tend to get into a problem. Well, we get into the problem one of two ways. If we have this relationship with money where it's the primary relationship in our lives, it's the primary driver for doing whatever we do. Why is that a problem? Because we forsake the people closest to us, we forsake our values, we forsake our other types of resources that are actually more important. Earlier we talked about your time and your attention you're spending here tonight. Those are more important than money, right? There, there's no refund on misspent time, no refund on misspent attention, right? Your energy is a resource, right? You, you, your creativity is a resource. But the other problem is if we pretend money is never important, ah, I never think about money. Oh, really? How do you pay your rent, right? No, money is a resource that we need to be considerate of, right? We don't want to squander it. But our relationship is somewhere in between. There are there's sort of the, the facts and the feelings of money. The facts are like the numbers you see on your monthly spreadsheet budget thing, right? If you're, you're using the Every Dollar app and you're like putting in the numbers, there's the facts there, right? And money isn't just that, though. It's 80% how it makes us feel. It breaks up relationships. It makes us stressed. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable because now it's, oh no, I spent some money on this, thing, on this art. I would never be ashamed for spending money on a piece of art. And so what you're really talking about is there is a problem of, of shame. Do I deserve this? And I'd love to hear TK talk a bit about that. Um, well, there are two conversations that are always going on. There's the verbal conversation then there's the vibrational conversation. The verbal conversation refers to the words that you're using as you speak. The vibrational conversation refers to the energetic state that you speak from. So I can be saying confident sounding words, but energetically, if I'm speaking from a state of being insecure or you know, not really believing in myself, that vibration is going to shine through, which is why when people tell us that they love us, we can feel that they're vibrating at a frequency of hate. It's our, our ability to recognize when we're being lied to 
comes from the fact that we can pick up on another person's vibration in spite of their verbiage, right? And so you don't have a verbal problem where you lack words to say to people. There's a vibrational issue going on where you kind of have this story you're telling that says, if I tell people the truth about my life, they're gonna think I'm privileged or they're gonna think I can't relate to them and that's gonna negatively affect my ability to serve them. Is that kind of like the story that's going on? Yeah, agree, definitely. Yeah, so what you wanna do is you wanna shift into a frequency of curiosity because curiosity is disarming. Anytime you get defensive when people question you, you actually lend credibility to the perception that you've got something to be defensive about. Yeah. The best way to deal with people's questions is to get curious and be unapologetic about it. So if someone says, hey, that looks like an expensive tattoo you got on your arm, must have cost a lot of money. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm blessed to have been able to make that investment in myself, for sure. I mean, it cost me a lot. Yeah, I wish I had that kind of money. Yeah, what would you do with it? Now their eyes light up. Man, if I had that kind of money, I would do this. Oh yeah, why would you do that? Oh yeah, tell me more, right? Now they're talking about themselves because the person doesn't really wanna have a conversation about you anyway. Even the person who accuses, <laughs> right? Even if a person accuses you of being privileged, it's only because they want to have a conversation about their own struggles. Oh, yeah. And so if you let go of the need to defend yourself against what you think they're accusing you of, and you recognize that everything that another person says to you is really about it, it's an expression of themselves, you can be curious and you can say, tell me about you, man. Tell me what made you say that? What made you ask that? What would you do if you had that kind of money? You ever got a tattoo before? What kind of tattoo would you get if you could afford one? And now you're off and running because you are listening to them and you're in the process of making a friend and winning the kind of trust that allows you to serve more effectively. Yeah. 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 You remember when we volunteered at the shelter in, in Dayton, Ohio, and people had iPhones? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like, there's something there with, um, I don't know, there's something there, there's an observation there, I'm not sure what it is, but. Well, I, I think, so I was talking to a, a friend that was helping us serve there, and so there were quite a few homeless people who were looking for places to charge their iPhones. And at first I'm like, oh, this is, the, what is going on here? Clearly, they don't have their priorities. And I'm just like, well, wait a minute. Like, that's the whole reason that they need help because they're, they're struggling like we all struggle to manage our priorities, mm. which, by the way, is not a thing. Priorities. That word became plural in the 20th century because priority literally means the first thing. So if you have 17 priorities, you have 17 the first things. And so, yes, sometimes our priorities get out of whack and we need some, we need some help. I think, I think that's ultimately it. Yeah. Oh, Jesse, there's, there's a difference between um, guilt and shame. And what I hear you expressing is guilt. And that is a lot different than shame because shame says, I am this type of person. We carry shame with us and then we start to project that out into the world where you're feeling guilty. Now, guilty, that's the shame I think is useless, but I think guilt is valuable. And I think that you can take that guilt and uh, you can look at that symptom and say, why am I feeling this guilt? Well, it's because this person doesn't have anything and I've spent money on this tattoo. Well, what am I doing for this person? Well, I'm literally at this sh shelter giving my time to them, which, you know, Josh already mentioned, it's way more 
important than money is your time. So I, I think guilt is a valuable emotion, but, uh, but look at that, ask why, yourself, why, why you yourself are experiencing that symptom and what are you doing to combat that symptom? Because if guilt used properly, it can actually help you do better into the world because so then that way you can avoid that guilty feeling in the future. So you could totally use that. And I want to thank you, Jesse. You're a good mom. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you. The world needs awesome moms. Thank you so much, Thanks, Jesse. Jesse. Appreciate you. Howdy. Hey, guys. Let me do a little dance with this Yeah, we got the here. tall guy here. What's your name, yeah. brother? My name's Will. Hey, Will. Welcome. Yeah. You guys make any seven-foot mic stands? <laughs> What's on your mind, brother? Six-one on a good day. Um, well, I'm really thankful to be here. I actually split my head open today dismantling a giant wooden structure in the forest. Oh. Um, so I had to get three staples. Obviously way worse than, than TK's story and Ryan's story. <laughs> so I'm really happy that I could, uh, could join you guys. <laughs> hey, Will, it's all bonus time from here on yeah, out, man. Exactly. <laughs> Glad so, you're anyway, okay, man. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was pretty fun, actually. Um, but anyway, so my question is, um, I have been actually in one of the best places I've really ever been in in my life, I have to say. I'm 23 years old. I just graduated from college uh, in December with a degree in Spanish and a minor in environmental studies. Um, and I'm planning on moving to Colorado at the end of the year. I'm from, Cal from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Gracias. Yo, I went to college in Kalamazoo, man, Western Michigan. You went to Western? I went to Western, dude. No shit. There really is a Kalamazoo. Yeah. There is a Kalamazoo. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, and so I'm in this, this odd transition time of like, okay, what do I want to do? And um, I know I want to be outside and, and share my love of the outdoors with people and with a movement and stuff like that. And I've recently discovered my own movement practice that is... Um, probably one of the most important things there is to me. I had chronic pain for a really long time and I don't have it anymore just because of um, the way I move my body. And um, so I had some past experiences and past traumas um, with my family and abandonment stuff and my parents are dysfunctional. My mom's an alcoholic and that kind of stuff. And um, so a couple years ago, I was like, okay, I haven't had sex yet, and so uh, obviously I'm not a lovable person if I haven't had sex yet, right? So I'm like, okay, I gotta download Tinder and whatever and, and um, find somebody. And so I did, and immediately after I went to Spain and I started to have all these panic attacks and this anxiety, this trauma came bubbling back up. Um, and so I've gone to Al-Anon, um, all of this good stuff, and like I'm in a great place now. Um, and so I'm recently downloaded Tinder again, and I'm like, okay, so I still don't really know this part of myself very well. Um, so something as fragile as sex and something as, um, yeah, something as fragile and as potentially fragile and meaningful as sex can be. Um, so, so meanwhile, I have these things that I have that I want most, like my movement, my friends, my relationships, outside, my spiritual stuff, you know? Um, so I just wanna hear you guys speak to the, the uh, idea of experimenting with things that I might want now that can be as fragile as something like sex. Um, 
Well, let's talk well, about why, yeah, why, why, is sex, why is sex fragile? That's an interesting way to put it. Well, if in my own experience, it has been quite fragile. Okay. For, for my, just where I come from, I guess. What, what do you mean by fragile? Like, uh, like um, just, it's, there's a lot, it's deep, I guess. It's, it's, it's very a, intimate for you. Yeah, 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 for me, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. TK, we were talking the other day about um, making room for someone to be able to hurt you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, like... Um, that you, you don't have the capacity to love me unless I give you the permission to hurt me, right? And if I'm engaging you in a way that makes me invulnerable to your ability to create pain in my life, then I'm also taking away all the room that makes love possible, right? So vulnerability is the space within which love becomes possible. We gotta be willing to be vulnerable and to embrace the fragility of life yeah. in order to experience those kinds of things. Yeah. But you know, what I, what I would say about, um, about your, your desire for sex, right? Imagine um, you've ever been to a store, in, in like a retail store, and there's a person there who obviously makes their money from commission, and, and you can just feel the desperation, right? They just exude desperation. They gotta make a sale in order yeah. to be able to pay that rent, and they approach you right away like, sir, can I help you with this, like 25% off? And you walk into the store, and you were genuinely interested in the clothes, but something about the desperation that that person was exuding just kind of made you repulsed and you're like, yeah. all right, I just gotta go, right? Or, you know, think about the guy at the bar who defines a successful Saturday night as walking away with someone's phone number, right? And, and, and you can just tell he's on a mission, like he needs it, he's thirsty, mm -hmm. right? And that guy may be attractive and he may be charming, but there's just something about the neediness that just creates this kind of energy that makes other people be like, I don't know if I can trust them, right? Yeah, yeah. Desperation and neediness makes people not really wanna be a part of whatever it is you have going on. But whenever you have an aura of self-confidence, whenever you are patient about something, people say, hey, that guy's sure of himself. I, I think I might wanna be a part of what he's doing. Right? Which is why you can't, you can't make money by being like, give me some money, give me some money, give me some money. Mm -hmm. You gotta be like, hey, let's, let's talk about you. Like, forget about the money for a second. Sure, we're gonna talk about that, but tell me what is it that you need? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Let's not even talk about the product features. Let's talk about the problem that you're trying to solve. That person, I'm winning trust, right? The likelihood that this person will pay their money is much higher. Same way we're making friends. If I'm like, hey, listen to me, like, I need friends, man, like anybody will do. Like, will you be my friend? Nobody <laughs> wants to be my friend, right? But if I say, hey, man, you're from Kalamazoo? I'm from Kalamazoo, too. Like, what was your favorite place to hang out? We're on the road to becoming friends, even though I'm not trying to get anything from him. It's the same way with sex. If you treat sex as an end in itself, and you engage people, with this energy about yourself that's like, man, it's been too long, I gotta have some sex, it's gonna make people be like, oh, I don't really know about this brother, you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Now, you can think that, it's okay, nothing wrong with sex, you can feel that, that's okay, but you don't lead with that, right? Yeah. When, I, when I first saw my wife, I said, God, she's got to be the one. I didn't tell her that though, right? I was like, hey, what's your name, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't tell her that. I, like, when I first saw her, I was like, this has got to be my wife. If I had told her that on the first encounter, I would have been a stalker and lost out, right? <laughs> so, so you got to play it cool. So when, when you meet people, realize that
this is a human being that you're dealing with. Sexual energy is just one manifestation of spiritual energy and creative energy. Mm -hmm. And sexual energy can be expressed in more ways than just getting in the bed together and getting physical. Mm -hmm. Channel that sexual energy into the creative way that you engage that person and make love to them conversationally first. Make love to them through the experiences that you create together with them first, and the sex will happen. You should start a love podcast. In the right time. Okay. Thanks, DK. Oh, man. That's, that's my latest. DK at midnight. Uh, I met my woman on, uh, on OkCupid. Um, Tinder wasn't around when her and I were, were doing the online dating, which is funny because if, if you were to have told my, like, I don't know, 18-year-old self, I graduated in 1999, and if you would have told me, like, you're going to meet the love of your life on the internet, I would have been like, oh, my God, how bad does it get? <laughs> But that's the age we live in, man. Like, they have these algorithms, and uh, you know, you can like like each other, and it's like, oh, you guys like each other. Start a conversation. Um, it's it's a very useful tool. I, you know, the only advice I would give you is, when you really start to get into a relationship with a woman, make sure that you are uh, on the same page, not just yeah. with sex, but I mean, sex is just one. It's it's a piece. It's a major piece of a relationship, a romantic relationship, but it's just one piece. And if you're, you could be, have com awesome compatibility with someone, but if they don't take sex as serious as you take it, then that relationship probably isn't going to work. So, um, yeah, use this opportunity with the technology to find someone who you can get on the same page with, and you guys can go as fast or as slow as you want. But, like, I know with Mariah and I, um, okay, Cupid. All right, so I'm going to give a little bit of a preface here. Colin Wright, he's, uh, he was on our first documentary, Minimalism, uh, went around the world with like 52 things. Um, he's actually the, the guy who, in, who introduced Josh and I to minimalism, which when I saw that, I'm like, 52 things? Like, I don't want to just own 52 things. And then thank God there were other minimalists like Joshua Becker and Courtney Carver. I'm like, oh, there's like normal people who are minimalists. <laughs> and uh, he was hired to, to write up an article for Match.com, um, basically uh, comparing Match.com with all the other websites and then writing up an article on how, what does Match.com have better than the other websites. So he did this very genuinely. He went out on like, you know, whatever dating sites were back in, Jesus, that's so long ago. 2009 <laughs> yeah, or 2009 something. or something. And he genuinely wrote up an article. Here's what Match.com has that the other ones don't. And he did, and he did his job. He did what he got paid to do. Um, but he was telling Josh and I, he's like, but secretly, OkCupid has the best algorithm. And there's like a 300-page, I don't know what Tinder's, if Tinder's like this, but uh, OkCupid's like 300 questions. And it takes hours to fill this out. But if you fill it out genuinely and someone else fills it out genuinely, the algorithm's really nice. So for Mariah and I, I think we were like a 93% match. And we're probably even more of a match now because my spirituality was a little bit different back then. But all that to say is, is if it wasn't for that algorithm, I don't know if I ever would have met my wife. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for you, man. Thanks. Well, yeah. Yeah, me too. Hey, if advertisements didn't suck, you could do a commercial for match. <laughs> Just saying. Will, are you ready for a left turn? Sure, let's take a let's left. Let's talk about the problem with Tinder. Go, go ahead. Let's talk about relationship consumerism. Ah. Tinder is a tool. There's nothing wrong with it. Just like a hammer, there's nothing wrong with it. I pull out a hammer right now and start hitting Ryan and TK with it. That's a big problem, right? 
And that's what we do with dating apps. Tinder is an example, but we have commodified love. I'm putting love in quotes here because it's not love. It's attraction and sexual attraction. We all get hungry, we all get sleepy, we all get horny. So like, that, that oh, it's the fact of life, right? And so right now what you're saying is, well, I've eaten and I've slept and now I want to have sex, right? And, and so, great. But let's talk about relationships with other people. Whether they're sexual or not sexual, there's three things that every relationship requires to some degree. Every relationship requires chemistry. And so that's what Tinder does really well. Oh, do I want to have sex with this person? And you know right away, you see the pictures, you don't even read the bio. The ladies read the bio <laughs> after they look at the, your picture. And we try to sort of approximate the second area, which is compatibility. You read that bio and you're like, ah, and you go on the first date. I wonder what, I wonder how I will fit together with this person. Not like that. Um, I wonder what our values are. Are they similar? Well, I like this person. In fact, that's the way I look at it. Because the third component is love. So I look at it as lust, that's the chemistry part, like, compatibility, love. Lust, like, love. Every relationship has some, even if you're just a friend with someone, right? the chemistry, you have to have some sort of ability to interact with someone, that's chemistry, right? Um, love, we misunderstand. We look at love as, well, we look at attachment as love. I need you to love me. Well, that's not love. That's a demand. That's an expectation. That's a, if love is a requirement, you're not loving them. And so I found love when I stopped looking for love, when I stopped needing love and approached the world in a loving way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, you'll, people will say, well, then that's how you're attracting love. Well, maybe, but really it's about approaching any interaction with love. Well, what does it mean to love? I don't think most people don't understand what love is. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. It's not handing them a list of seven things. I would love you if these seven criteria were met in addition to everything you're doing right now. No, that's conditional love, right? And it's possible to love someone and maybe not like every piece of them. And that's okay. Now, the hardest part in a relationship is actually that compatibility part. Are we compatible on sex or money or values or desires or hobbies or travel? There are all these different compatibility areas. You know, I'm an extreme introvert. My wife's an extreme introvert. But and Ryan and his wife are both extreme extroverts, right? If we were to swap, no. Um, it's a good reality show, though. Yeah. Quick, get Netflix on the phone. Um, it's so gross. <laughs> yeah, it's all. <laughs> I mean, I'd be fine if Mariah dates Bex. <laughs> you know, I just want Mariah to be happy, so, you know. <laughs> no, so, um, what, what I'm saying is that the compatibility piece is going to be there, but you, you may find that it's really easy to be attracted to someone, right? that lust piece, and then to think, oh, this is going to last forever, right? Well, no, it doesn't tend to, but here's the key. As soon as we start mucking in that compatibility area, we start to lose the attraction to the person, mm -hmm. and that becomes a problem 
Because we might get the like, but, and we become great roommates, but then we lose the, the lust. We lose the, the chemistry that made the relationship passionate and exciting early on. And I think the only way to create that chemistry long-term is through distance. Now, it's, that distance is different for everyone. My wife and I spend about half of our time apart, which seems crazy to some people, right? And uh, when Ryan wants to be alone, he goes and spends time with his wife. And we're each different, right? And it's finding the distance that works for you that creates that chemistry. And I think that's what will make the sex not fragile for you. But showing up with love will also make it um, anti-fragile. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for your question. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah. Uh, you are lovable. You are lovable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people that swipe right for this gentleman tonight. Thanks, Will. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, my name's Kelsey. And hey, Kelsey. Uh, I traveled here from Detroit today. So, All right. uh, Detroit. very glad that Thanks uh, for coming out. this was rescheduled. And as much as I was sad, I was glad to come back to Chicago. So thanks for coming here and yeah. speaking to us. Thanks Welcome. What's on your mind? So I have my book here because I take a lot of notes. And it's the only way I remember anything. But... Um, you know, everything that uh, you've put out there um, has this thread of knowing your values and living your life intentionally to honor those. And I kind of think of it like as a formula for how to make this whole minimalism thing work. Yeah. But there's always been something that felt like missing from that formula until today when I was watching your Maximal with Joshua Becker about distractions. And it occurred to me that attention, which we've talked about, uh, is maybe that piece that is missing, not that you haven't discussed it. Um, and I've actually been reading about it in uh, Amishi Jha's book, Peak Mind, um, where she talks about the floodlight, the flashlight, and the executor. All that to say, I'd like to hear from any or all of you about your personal uh, ways that you cue into when your attention isn't where you feel it needs to be for you, and then how you get back to where you believe it needs to be. It's, it, in a way, I don't have a how-to for you, but you already knew that. Um, <laughs> because it, in a way, it's almost like, how do you love, if I were to say, hey, TK, how do you love your wife? You could even tell me, like, you could give me a description. You listen to the Midnight Show. <laughs> <laughs> you could give me like, oh, well, here are the 17 reasons that I find Michelle uh, lovable, attract, whatever it is, right? But those 17 things wouldn't equal love because you could find those 17 other qualities in someone else and you will love that person but not in the, with the same sort of um, vigor that you love your wife, right? And so um, the attention side of things is, is fascinating because it is possible for me to sit down at a table with Ryan and we're having dinner together. We're spending time, very precious resource, but I'm giving him none of my attention. And I could pull out my phone, and I'm there the whole time just you know, scrolling through Twitter or you know, whatever thing that is distracting me. And in some ways, our attention has to do with what are we putting between us and the things that we want or the people that we want to give attention to, right? And quite often, we're creating these smoke screens. We do it with our smartphones, obviously. There was a executive at Google who called it the 79th organ because it's always there with us. 
You know, we're talking about augmented reality, but we've already, you know, we carry it around with us already. We panic if we leave it at home. And so this thing is an attention-draining machine. It's also a wonderful tool that has made my life easier. Thanks to GPS, I got here on time today. And, and so it's, I, I'm not saying that smartphone bad, get rid of all your technology, I'm not a Luddite, but also understanding the things that get in the way of our attention are actually the problem. It's not that I am unable to stay attentive, it's that I have all of these other things that are constantly just tapping me, just briefly, hey, hey, check this out, hey, look at this, look at this, and what does that do? That trains me, it trains my brain to constantly be looking for stimuli. And those stimulating things rarely produce any sort of meaningful result that I look back and say, I sure am glad I was scrolling Instagram for 45 minutes today. Yeah, man, what you're talking about are those imaginary values. Like we tell ourselves that we need, we need to scroll, we need that entertainment, we need that dopamine hit. But yeah, those are just imaginary values. So I think first and foremost, like you have to get clear on what your values are, right? I mean, that's that's a very difficult part to really kind to kind of uh, dissect that. And then once you have like the main values, there are different ways to fill those buckets. You could look at them as buckets to fill those buckets with those values. But I mean, that's how I kind of look at my life. If um, I'm feeling a little down or a little off or a little depressed or a little anxious, like I'll start to look at well, how's my health? Like, when's the last time I went to the gym? How, how, how have I been eating? How have I been sleeping? Um, when's, you know, look at my relationships. When's the last time I called my mom or my grandma or, you know, whatever, and, you know, so forth and so on with, I mean, Josh and I wrote about this in our first book, Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, with health, relationships, cultivating passion, growth, and contribution. And so I will look at the least full bucket and like that's where I'm like, oh, okay, this is probably, like I've really been eating like garbage lately. Like I probably need to like tighten up on that. And that's also making me not sleep well. But, you know, there's many reasons why those buckets might be empty. The one thing I'll say about values, though, is uh, I feel like once we claim what our values are, it's like we hold on to them so tightly. And we do this with beliefs, too. We hold on to it so tightly. And that could be to a detriment. The one thing I'll say is... Um, you know, have your beliefs, have your values, but don't believe in them too much. <laughs> Be open to like them changing and uh, you growing as a person, those are going to change. That has really helped me. Like as an extrovert, Josh is right. Like I, I love being around people. Um, I've made way too many friends in Los Angeles and I can't even hang out with them all. But I find as I get older, the more introverted I become. I'm still an extrovert. But I find myself wanting to be a little bit more introverted. And I'm okay with that. I don't look in the mirror and be like, what's wrong with you? You used to love to party. You don't party anymore, you loser. No, no I just look at myself. I'm like, oh, I'm getting older. I'm slowing down. I don't, like to, I don't like to be around people as much. That's okay. I still like to be around people, but I need more alone time. So being open to those changing, too, uh, could help. I have four friends. Two of them are on stage. And then uh, Jordan No More and Podcast Sean are both up there. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. TK, any, uh, any thoughts on values, and uh, especially on attention? Yeah, I, I do think it's important to have a consciously developed philosophy of attention, if for no other reason than that we have lots of forces that are competing and vying 
for our attention. I heard Charlemagne the God say one time that most people wake up in the morning and they let social media tell them what they should be angry about. And I think attention is a lot like money. If you're willing to spend it on anything, you'll eventually be duped out of everything. And so just as we need to have a financial budget that informs us about the why and the how for sp spending our money, we also sh should have a kind of budget for our attention so that we're not being impulsive and we're not letting other people dictate and determine what it is we're talking about, what it is we're thinking about. I think the way that you figure this out, though, is not intellectual. I think passion is fundamentally a visceral experience. You've got to get back into your body. You've got to feel with your heart and your intuition. We have a whole world of people who genuinely think they don't know what they're passionate about. I have students tell me all the time, I don't know what I like. I don't know what I'm passionate about. And I say, well, it's because you're intellectualizing it. What you really mean when you tell me that is, you know what you like, because what you like is a visceral experience, but you haven't figured out how to monetize that. And so because you don't have any intellectual answers to the intellectual question of how I make a living with what I like, you've now convinced yourself that you don't have the ability to know if something tastes good to you or not that you don't have the ability to know if something is boring to you or fun to you or fulfilling to you or desirable to you. We know viscerally the difference between hot and cold. If you say, this is hot, and I say, no, it's not. Really, what's your argument for that? No, you don't wanna hear my argument because you know you can feel it. And so what I would do is, I would, one of the reasons why meditation is so valuable isn't because we have mystical experiences in the middle of meditation. That's very rare. Meditation is valuable because over time, you bring an increased quality of awareness to ordinary experience, it sharpens your intuition, and it gives you an improved ability to know where your body is at when it comes to what you're doing. And your body will agree with you or disagree with you. You'll be responding to somebody on social media, or you'll be listening to somebody tell you what you need to be worried about, and your body will say, I don't like this conversation. I don't want anything to do with this. And you can know from there, like, hey, this, this isn't in alignment with where I wanna be. You know, there's an excellent book about this called The Body Keeps the Score, where it, it talks about, I mean, look at Ryan, body don't lie. You know what I mean? Like this man goes to the gym, body oh, don't stop lie. stop talking. But, but, uh, the, <laughs> the body keeps the score. And so I would incorporate, you know, a little meditation into my, my daily routine and, and just focus on getting into that visceral awareness so that when I am doing something, I don't have to have a deep philosophical question or argument for why I should and should not be doing it but I can feel whether or not that's in alignment with, with my being. Yeah. yeah. Man, you brought up something about, uh, you know, uh, your, your students getting upset, or not upset, but saying, oh, that's not my passion because I can't make money at it. And that's like the biggest way to kill a passion yeah. is try, try to make money at it. Um, yeah, you got to do something because you love it. I'll say this too. It's also possible to make money from a thing, again, not making it the primary driver, and so, sometimes that feels overwhelming to people. I remember when I left the corporate world and I told people I was going to be a writer. Um, and they're like, well, how, if anyone could do that, they, then everyone would do it. I'm like, well, no, there are people who make a living from writing, right? You can reverse engineer that. You can figure out, like, well, how did someone else make a living from that? So if you've identified the thing you're passionate about and you're willing to do it regularly without any compensation, eventually there's a way to figure out how, to, how someone else made money from it. The problem we run into is when we feel like I have to make money from it and I have to make money from it now, otherwise I'm not passionate about it. Well, that's crazy. Almost everything Ryan and I have done together 
we didn't make any money on for a very long time. We did the podcast for many years without any money. We went on tour and lost tens of thousands of dollars going on tour. I remember our, our first tour, we had a trunk full of books. Here, here's our business model. Ryan, if we sell enough books tonight, we can split a room at the Hampton Inn. If not, we're going to sleep in your 2004 Toyota Corolla until we make it to the next city. And we did this over and over and over because it was something we were passionate about. Eventually, it yielded some income. Occasionally, it was enough to buy a, a hotel room. But now, because uh, tonight, you all spent money to get in here, separate hotel rooms. That's right. We made it. Oh, man. Thanks for your question. Hey, you know, there's a dating analogy, um, too, for the, uh, the, the forcing your passion to make money too soon. It's like, if you're attracted to someone, you have to flirt before you date, and you have to date before you propose, right? If you try to propose too soon, you'll ruin what could possibly be a good thing. You gotta give yourself room to flirt first, right? And so what a lot of people do is the moment they identify their passion, rather than flirt with their passion, rather than date their passion, they immediately try to marry it and their passion says, no, I don't wanna marry you right now. And then they go, oh, I can't win with my passion. But like, you have to give yourself room and time to experiment with your passion, to playfully engage your passion with no pressure to make any money and that's where the creative ideas come from for how you can serve people with it. And that's where you get the money because economically speaking, money is a reward for creating value for others. You can't learn how to do that if you don't spend any time playing around with your passion without blocking the creative process by needing to figure out the economics first. I'll pin that with one thing. It's even more important to flirt after the proposal. Yeah. Keep the flirting alive. Keep that in mind, Will. Tweet that. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Julie. Hey, Julie. Hi. Will ruined the height of that mic for you, didn't he? He did. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I wanted to preface my question by saying I met my current boyfriend on Bumble. <laughs> cool. So I recommend Bumble. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so I work in social media marketing, and I very much enjoy my job. My question around marketing is... What's your definition of ethical marketing, if you think it exists, and how would you implement that in a corporate setting? Sure. Yeah, it becomes more difficult with that second part. But I, I think definitions don't really go anywhere, so I'm not interested in definitions. But I'll talk to you about the, the way Ryan and I market ourselves, right? When you hear us say advertisements suck, what are we really saying, right? So an advertisement is a type of marketing, right? Um, just like a self-promotion or a promotion, like we promote our events is a type, of a type of marketing as well. The difference with advertisements is I think they're the largest contributor to a lot of our um, discontent in society. It's the reason Ryan and I refuse to do them, not because all advertisements are evil. It's not a moral decision for us. I don't think it's immoral to advertise. The, the problem is... Marketers know that the best way to sell you something is to make you feel inadequate, to make you feel incomplete, to make you feel less than. And only if you feel incomplete, then they have the solution, right? And it requires a repeat a subscription to it, and you have to continue to consume that in order to feel whole. Of course, you get those things that you think that you wanted, and then the object of your desire soon becomes the object of your discontent. 
when Ryan was giving his talk earlier, he was talking about the true cost of a thing goes way beyond the price tag, the cost of storing the thing and cleaning the thing and maintaining the thing and painting the thing, worrying about the thing. There's a lot of costs, right? It's like the first cost on the price tag, and the second cost is sort of psychological, emotional, weighs us down. And that's what marketers do. They're really good. That's what advertisers do. They're really good at making us feel inadequate. So I would just reverse it. If I want to, if I want to add value to other people's lives, then I have to market what Ryan and I do. But how can I do so in a way that doesn't make people feel inadequate? How can I do so in a way that it adds value? So I'm always asking that question, whether I'm sending a tweet, posting a blog post, putting out a podcast, does this add value? And if I can answer that question with a hell yeah, then yeah, go ahead and market it. Yeah, it's, it's such a it's such a fine line because um, I, I see where you're coming from. Because like at first, I want to say, well, you know, if you really if you have a, a product or a service that you really believe in, and it's done in an ethical way, uh, why not you know go and advertise it? And and you know, I could sit here and uh, give that as like the um, you know the permission to go advertise something. But Josh and I have opted out of it mainly because we don't want to have to talk about anything. So we talk about stuff. All, I just talked about OkCupid. Okay you know, we've been talking about other things. I, I, uh, I'm not going to sit here and list the products, but there are a lot of things that we talk about, and people will come to us and I'm like, oh man, you know what? You mentioned that, and like we had six thousand people come to our website. Like, can we can we do like a you know a monthly sponsorship with you guys? And it's like no, because then I got to talk about you, and I don't want to have to talk about you. I want it to come up naturally. But yeah, there, there's a line. I'm, I'm sure uh, where it is, but. Um, I guess Josh and I, are, we, don't want to even, we don't even want to try and like walk that line. You know, I, I think, um, ready to take a left turn? Just kidding. <laughs> I had to steal that one from you. I, I think most people have a problem with not marketing enough. I mean, usually when we say things like advertisements suck, we're not talking about us, right? We're talking about like the, the monopolies and so on. But there's so many beautiful and brilliant people in this world who have amazing gifts and talents to offer, and you can't pay them to admit it. Because I don't, I don't wanna seem like I'm bragging, you know? I don't wanna seem like I'm you know, conceited. And it can be so hard to just unearth all of that beauty in a human soul and make people aware of it. To me, ethical marketing is the recognition that it is unethical to have something that is of service to humanity and to hide it to take your light and to refuse to let it shine because, well, you know, I don't want anybody to think I'm trying to be a star or anything. To do that is to take your ego and to put it at the center of the story rather than to take humanity's needs and problems and put that at the center of the story and say, human beings are so important, I will not allow my imposter syndrome to prevent me from sharing the light that is within me. I will own what is within me and I will offer it even if that causes me to be criticized for it because I care enough to help solve people's problems. And that's the difference between marketing and a cult. How do you respond when other people say, hey, that's not for me? Ethical marketing is when you say, no problem. Because marketing isn't about twisting people's arms in order to get them to do something that they don't want or need to do. It's about finding the people who already have a problem for which your service or product is the solution. 
Now, a cult, on the other hand, when somebody says it's not for me, well, tell me why is it not for you? And they're going to have an answer to everything because it's all about making the sell and getting you to buy into whatever it is they're saying. Character is not demonstrated in how we present our ideas, products, and services. Character is demonstrated in how we respond to people when they say no thanks. The difference between ethical marketing and unethical marketing is when we say, hey world, I know somebody out there has this problem. I'm pretty passionate about solving those types of problems. Here's how I go about doing it. If anybody's interested, here's how you can contact me for more information. And for the people who say I don't want it, no problem. I hope whatever it is you're going through, you're able to get the solution for that. And if I can help you find the solution, even if I don't make any money from it, let me know how I can help. That's ethical marketing. Anything else? It's just a cult in disguise. Thank you. Ryan, I see that we're running out of time and we still have an appreciable line here, but... At least I, a million. I figured we could do a quick lightning round. Let's do it. I forgot to mention something here. So, everyone, you can get out your phones because we're, do, we're recording this tonight, thanks to Jordan No More and Podcast Sean. They're recording this. There are two ways to get a recording of this if you're one of our Patreon supporters. Any Patreon supporters here tonight? Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yes. Every week we do a private podcast for our lovely Patreon supporters. And uh, so we also release our live events there as well, privately, not publicly. But we're going to give you, anyone in here tonight, a recording of the event for free. All you have to do is text us. I'm going to give you our phone number. If you text the word BULLS, that's, uh, that one's for TK. If you text the word BULLS to 937-202-4654, uh, I'll give you the number one more time in a second. Um, we'll send you a recording once it's we're, we're done editing it. That way you can rewind it and go back to the TK parts over and over and over. Um, that phone number, just text the word BULLS to 937-202-4654. And that number actually goes to both of our phones. We should add TK on that as well. We could have a lot of fun. Anyone had a response from me or Ryan? And, okay, we, I mean, we actually do. I mean, I can't respond to everyone, but like, we'll get in there and we'll just like, play around, have some fun, um, answer some questions there as well. So if we don't get your question tonight, you want to text us, we'll do our best to get to it then as well. Uh, some people just send us eggplant emojis. <laughs> Careful Will. A lot of passionate farmers out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> gardening enthusiasts. <laughs> um, yeah, please don't. Uh, yeah, but you can send us whatever you want. Every Monday, we'll send you a Monday morning minimal maxim as well, a little way to start your week off with some simplicity. No, uh, no advertisements, though, obviously. Howdy, what's your name? We'll, we'll try to make this a lightning round. We'll get to as many people as we can before they drag us off the stage. Howdy. Hello, Joshua, Ryan, TK. Thank you so much for this amazing experience tonight. Beautiful energy. Um, my question is around communication, fear, and intimacy. So very, very brief background. Um, I met my ex-husband at 20, got married at 22, divorced by 28 and now I'm very, very grateful for an amazingly healthy relationship of six years. Thank Ooh. you. We talk about the hard things, the things that most people try to avoid, and my question is around 
the more traditional choices that the three of you appear to have made with choosing to marry again in a world where the opportunities for variety are limitless. And so my question is, what led you to make the decision to carry on following in the footsteps of a more traditional path in how you structure your relationship through marriage? And I'd like to hear more about that story. Thank you. She's talking to y'all, man. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I don't have the piece of paper with Mariah. So, I mean, we actually have gone about it kind of untraditionally. And I guess uh, if I was to give you a tweetable answer, love does not require a certificate. <laughs> In fact, I think that certificate can often, like, now it binds us and it becomes an attachment, right? Um, not that there's anything wrong with it either. It's in, and it's not about renouncing the certificate. Um, yeah, I would actually argue that, that Ryan and I have some pretty unconventional... I mean, and my relationship with Bex is certainly unconventional. I mean, uh, we live apart half the time because we found that works well for us. We need space from each other, but it creates that chemistry whenever we are back together. Not just sexual chemistry, which it does that as well, but it creates the, the, the longing, the healthy yearning, right, that allows us to come back together in a way that fuels us, that makes us feel alive. And we still have the amount of time to support each other. And so... Um, yeah, I, we, we talk about this a lot on her podcast, actually. It's called How to Love. And um, it's not really a, a how-to, because there is no how to love. That's the whole thing. It's really about understanding love. And for the longest time, I wanted to have other people conform to my worldview. And I realized that was unloving them, right? And it's easy, because I'm always right. And so <laughs> it sucks when the people I love are wrong, and so if you could be, just be right like me, but that's self-righteousness, right? And so my pithy answer for you would be that self-righteousness blocks love. All right, Mr. Traditional, what do you got? Oh, uh, man. Uh, speaking of tradition, so the, uh, one of my favorite quotes is, is from a, uh, a Russian Orthodox theologian who says that, he says that tradition is not the dead faith of the living, it's the living faith of the dead. And the goal of adherence to tradition is not to be arbitrarily loyal to the past or arbitrarily loyal to the people that have come before us. The goal of tradition is to try to understand what was best about the people who came before us, what they did, and then figure out how to do that in our own way, in our own day. So the true traditionalist isn't someone who says, well, they used to do this like this in the 1800s, so I'm gonna do it like that too. The true traditionalist says, well, in the 1800s, they did what was best for them, and so I'm going to be like them and do what's best for me and my time by understanding the context that undergirded their decisions. And so for me, I don't approach my marriage in a traditional way in the sense of saying, you know, how has marriage been structured for the last uh, thousand years, and then let me try to do that. I say, no, like, the marriages that seem to be successful are the ones where the couple determines the rules that they will play by, what's right for them, and they keep everybody else out of their business. And so if you have a marriage where one person makes the most money and that's not traditional, 
does that work for you and your spouse? If you have a marriage where only one person is working or both people are working, doesn't matter what people before that did, does that work for you and your spouse? What are your preferences? What are your priorities? What are your principles? To me, that, that is what makes tradition live. When a couple is bold enough to say, hey, what, what's best for us? And you give yourself permission to do it. So, I mean, that's how we try to do it. And we also embrace our uncertainty and vulnerability. We seem to be doing it well, but I think it's not so much about getting everything right. It's about being willing to be honest and transparent about the fact that we're, we're just trying to figure it out together. And that's part of love too. It's going through the journey of life together saying, hey, let's, let's figure this out as we go along. And we'll never get it right, but we'll do it well because we'll always be on the same team. Yeah. Thank you. Brian, I see that we're out of time, but what do y'all think? Could we go over for two more? Would you be okay with that? All right. Let's do two more. And anyone else can text us. I apologize to the other folks we didn't get to. This happens from time to time. Send us a text. Eggplant emojis, etc. Howdy, what's your name? Hi, I'm Emma. I'm hey, Emma. originally from Japan. I moved in here last year. So yeah. it's great to see you guys finally. Awesome. Welcome. Thanks Thanks to be here. You. Thanks for being here. Thanks. <laughs> um, my question is about job. My job, yes. Um, so for me, more than consumerism, my job is a roller coaster. So there are moments of good moments, like, oh, I feel I'm contributing to something, sense of fulfillment. My job requires me to relocate to different countries every two to three years, so get to know different countries, that's great. But also there are bad moments where there are long hours of working and long hours tend to lead to bad, toxic human relationship at work, which sometimes in the past, not in Chicago, don't worry, but once in Japan, once in Africa, which is where I was before here, I had some suicidal thoughts because of my work. So my question is, what would you do if you're in a job that part of it aligns with your value, like going to different countries, getting to know people, sense of fulfillment, but it also has those other aspects where it really gives you a hard time to this point that you have really bad thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I will say this, you are not alone. Most of the people in this room have had those same thoughts. We don't talk about it as, as a society, and um, we get into these dark times where we feel like I just want this to end. And this either feels like, A, the easiest way out, or sometimes it feels like, oh, that, that's the only way out. But of course, it's not the only way out. And thank goodness you realized that. I'm grateful you're here today. You know, it's interesting because sometimes we begin to accidentally moralize things in our life uh, in a way that um, doesn't serve us. So I heard you say something like, these bad things happen, like, I have to work a lot of hours. And it's like, Ryan and I are like, we work a ton of hours, and it's awesome. And so, like, it's not inherently bad, any of these attributes. It may be not preferable for you, and it's great to understand that. But I would strip away the sort of good and bad from it, because that, that's not always helpful. Because the, the truth is that there are some things 
that you would love to do for 60 hours a week. And you wouldn't say, ah, oh, it's bad that I... Now, too much of anything is going to exhaust us at some point, right? But also, the things we get really passionate about, there's an obsessive quality to those things. That's what actually makes us feel alive, is I really want to dive deep into this. I'm, I'm eager, I'm passionate, I'm focused. We use certain euphemisms, like it had a timeless quality, right? Or I was in the moment, I was present, right? You can't do present, you can't be present. You can be present, you can't do present. You can't like, I'm gonna, here's the six things I'm gonna do to be present, no. Presence happens as a result of full immersion into something that is really attracting our attention, something that I'm obsessed with. And so it sounds to me like right now, if your job was a, a soup, someone put a few little turds in there. <laughs> and you're asking me, how do I pick out the turds and still eat the soup? And I would say, well, it's not something that I want to eat personally. But um, you can find a new stew that you enjoy, and uh, you know maybe it won't taste like shit. Sweet that podcast, Sean. Oh, man. Uh, I'm just trying to think of something, something pithy. Um, I don't want to keep you guys here all night. Uh, I would say something along the lines of uh, whether it's an abusive lover or an abusive job, abuse is unacceptable. Now that's pithy. I, I wish I had enough time to make it really short, but I, I will do so anyway. Don't worry, Sean will make it short in post. Uh, my gosh, uh, two things. I'll just say two things. Um, number one, never struggle alone. Please, never struggle alone. That's easier said than done, but it's also better done than said. Um, always find someone to share those thoughts and feelings with. It can be very easy to define integrity or virtue as you know, the ability to deal with temptations by myself, the ability to deal with struggles without needing anyone to talk to about it. But the holiest people, the most trustworthy people, are the ones who have a total lack of ego about coming before other people with a sense of vulnerability and saying, man, I'm struggling. I'm, struggle I'm struggling to even do those things that seem to be beneath integrity because that's where you get healing and that's where you get help. So please never struggle alone. I'm glad that you're here with us. I'm glad that you overcame those dark moments. And, and I, I pray and I plea that you find someone that you can trust to be able to talk to about those sorts of things because temptation is not a one-time experience. It's a, it's a lifelong battle and, and we defeat it through community and through relationship. The other thing I will say is that um, Sometimes quitting can be as much of an expression of character as sticking with something. There's nothing inherently good about proving that you can put up with something. And so if you're dealing with things at work that are introducing elements of toxicity in your life, it's okay to start gradually creating an exit plan that you might be able to implement in another six to 12 months, if you know what I'm saying. Don't force yourself to put up with things that are toxic in your life just because you feel you know, guilty about it and feel like, well, a good person would not have a problem with that. There's nobility in walking away from things that do not serve you. That wasn't Pike TV.
Thank you so much. Howdy. Hey, hey, I'm happy to be, um, I got the opportunity to be the last question today. What's your name, brother? My name's Deshaun Adams. I am born and raised Chicago, the West Side. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I love this idea about minimalism, and I think it's easy to understand when we talk about actual objects, like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm wearing a hat right now. Like, say I got 10 hats. Um, maybe, maybe I'd be happy with just two, right? But I'm curious to know what do you guys input when you, you take into account when that desire for being materialistic transpires into, um, you know, consuming people in that regard, right? And I'll be very blunt, like, so um, I got a good friend and I remember we were just hanging out like, a, like, a, like two weeks ago, he was at the bar and he was like, yo, like, man, let's, let's run around, let's do another round, you know, we're gonna get some more girls and stuff like that. And it's just like, and I just wanted to like talk to him to see how he was doing and like have a conversation. And he's like dedicated on like, you, you mentioned like getting that number. And, and I'm just like, okay, bro, like, like, what's up? He's like, I'm gonna get them and I'm, I'm gonna hook up with the girls. And it's like, it's like the same cycle, like every weekend after weekend, right? I'm just like, bro, like, you probably hooked up with like 100 girls at this point. He was like, man, well over 100, you know, like beating his chest. And I just say like, what's, like, what's, like, what's the point? You tell me about this job that you got and you're like so excited to get this role. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get this role. I'm like, okay, what happens when you get that role? He's like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go out and hook up with girls. They're gonna be hotter, you know, hotter and hotter. And it's like, all right, what happens when you get the next promotion? They're gonna be hotter than that. And it's just like, <laughs> okay. So I just think to myself, like, you know, I'm in like a forcing position. Like, I, I make like decent money for my age, you know. I'm on my way to an Ivy League school, doing good for myself for the most part. And I just can't fathom like every moment, every decision I make is just like, okay, I'm gonna get these grades, get these jobs to hook up with a girl. And then after that, you're gonna get a hotter girl. And it just goes on and on. And I invited that friend here today. I'm like, hey, bro, like, you know, um, my birthday's coming up. We should go to this minimalist thing. And he's like, ah, oh, man, minimalist. It might be a minimum amount of chicks there. I'm good, bro. Let's, <laughs> let's hang out this weekend, though. Like, this, this true story is like, let's hang out this weekend. We can get turned, right? Um, so I'm just like, I'm thinking to this guy, like, bro, like, we gotta, like, you gotta want more. So my question to you guys is like, in this day and age, you know, the guy brought up Tinder, you got the hands, the bumble, you met your wife, I think it was okay, Cupid, whatever you said, I forget. Um, but what happens when people start like consuming people like they want things? Like I gotta get the new shoes and it's like, I just gotta get a new hookup and it's like hookup after hookup and it's just like, bro, like can we have a bro moment? Or like, do you like, you know, what happened to the girl that you actually like? Like, so I, I, I'm curious to know what you guys think about people who are, um, you know, consuming things as people, consuming people like things. Does, does yeah. he sound like someone he used to know? His friend? <laughs> that's, that's like me at 25, man. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. There's hope. There's hope. It only works till you're about 30 and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? <sighs> oh, man. Anybody seen Californication? <laughs> it was Nicodemus in his 20s. Um, Deshaun, let me, let me say a few things. That's, I mean, the title of the book... Love people and use things because the opposite never works, right? And yet, the reason that we wrote that book is throughout our 20s, what Ryan was talking about, that's exactly what we did. We loved things. Oh, if I got the right car, I coveted. And there's nothing wrong with a car, right? There's nothing wrong with even a nice car. You know, a Lexus, Lexus makes fine cars, right? 
but it doesn't complete me. It doesn't make me any happier, right? In fact, when that car, first car statement shows up, it makes me a little less happy, right? Oh, shit, I got to pay on this for 83 months. Um, we love things, and as a result, we use people. We commodify love. I mean, it's part of the advertisements, right? Diamonds are forever, right? Show her that you love her by buying her this uh, rock that was uh, acquired by chopping off children's limbs. Um, didn't mean to get that dark, but it's, the truth is, uh, is rough. Anyway, um, we, uh, we commodify people. We start to use people. We treat them like they are objects. There's a word for it. We objectify people, right? Now, let's talk about why we do this, because I think it's really important to understand this. We do it the same reason we do it with the stuff. It, we all have a human need for significance. We want to feel significant. And there are three ways to feel significant. One might call it validation, right? To be valid to other people. The first way to do it is to impress other people, to put yourself on a pedestal above them, right? And so how do you do that? Well, you hook up with all the hottest chicks, right? You drive the nicest car, you have the nicest job, you go to the Ivy League school, you make a lot of money, you have the big house in the suburbs, you have the summer home. Anytime we do an event and I ask people, tell me what a successful person looks like, people will shout out things like, they're wear if it's in a magazine ad, let's say, they're driving a sports car, they're wearing an expensive suit, they have on an expensive watch, they have a big house, maybe they have a boat, right? They, they have all this sort of accoutrements of success, the accumulation. Well, why do we do that? Because if I get all of the right things, then you will think I'm worthy. You'll think I'm significant. I'm proving my significance to the world. And I need you to think I'm significant. The reason that doesn't work long term is because you buy a Lamborghini today, a 2022 Lamborghini, and seven years from now, it's a seven-year-old Lamborghini. How impressive is that? And that happens to everything, right? That impressing upon people, the threshold continues to go up and up and up, and it's never-ending. The second way you can gain significance is being on the level with someone. It's by showing up and just listening, listening to them. Tell me about you. What do you have to say? Loving them, seeing them for who they are. I mean, by the way, that's so much easier than buying a Lamborghini or get, making a ton of money. Showing up and listening is a surefire way to get someone else's validation. There's a third way, and it's actually the easiest way to get all the validation. And you serve people. You add value to other people's lives. You show up in a way, tiny little ways, day after day, and contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way. And if you do that, you don't just get a little bit of acceptance, a little bit of validation. You get all of it. Your cup overflows with significance, with compassion, with love. And all you have to do is serve people a little bit add a little bit of value to their lives, and it makes you feel so much better than buying the next thing or going out on the next Tinder date so you can acquire someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. This makes me think of, uh, if you just want to see like the most monstrosity of a house you've ever seen, just look up the one tour.
And it is this, it's, it's like the loneliest man I've ever seen in my life who's like given this tour, that, this house that he has built. And there's a whole other story that goes beyond the time that I have to talk about it right now. But it just makes me think of that. Um, and, you know, when I ask myself, like, what can I do for that man? What can I, if I knew him, what can I do for him? The fact is I can do nothing for that man. Like, that man, until he wants to be helped, you know, he will never, he will never accept the help. So I'm going to give you an oldie but a goodie uh, with the, 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 the minimal the minimal maxim here. You can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. So I'm not telling you to stop hanging out with your friend. Keep showing up for him as much as you want, but you can't change that, man. There's nothing you can do about that, and that's okay. You can still be his friend and hang out with him, but you're on the right path, and that's really the best thing you can do is show him from, from the way you're living. So I see two themes in, in, in what you're talking about here. One is the question of what is the why that defines how I should live? And the second is what is the way to deal with people who have a radically different why? That first question, it's so clear that you have a compelling answer to it and you've deeply internalized that answer. It's clear that you're very purpose-driven it's clear that you have a strong inner compass and you know the values that define your life and what you're going after. The challenge is, how do you deal with that second question, right? What is the way to deal with someone who has a radically different why? And that's where so many of our troubles come from in life, right? Mother Angelica says, being a saint would be easy if it wasn't for other people, right? <laughs> Other people make it so hard. Um, one of my friends, he's here tonight, he sometimes says jokingly, TK, my kids won't let me be great. <laughs> and, and sometimes it seems like the thing that stands between us and the greatness that we seek to live is it's just other people, people that just don't get it. They don't get the things that we get. They don't support the values that we support. And one of the ways that we try to deal with that is we try to convert them. We try to preach at them. And that hardly ever works because nothing is more annoying to a person than an answer to a question that they are not even asking which is why we have to live such compelling lives that other people will be compelled to express curiosity about our why in their own time without trying to force them to accepting what it is we've discovered. Sometimes when we discover something new or we come across something that changes our lives, we get so excited about it, we just wanna convert everybody we know, but there is a great value in just taking the time to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, to work on the things that you need to work on and respect other people's right to follow their own path in their own time and to discover what they need to discover when they need to discover it. And if you're compelling, consistent, and respectful to them the entire time, you'll be the first, first person that they come to when they are ready. Last thing, we talk a lot about minimizing things I think it's also important to be able to give yourself permission to minimize people. And when I say minimize people, I don't mean degrade them, disparage them, disrespect them, but I mean minimize your quantity of interaction with them and don't force yourself to do things with other people just because we used to go to the same high school, we used to go to the same grade school. You gotta be loyal to your values first 
before you're loyal to your history with other people. And if people are trying to get you to do something that's leading you away from the person that you've decided you're gonna be, you have the permission to say no. We can watch a game together, but if all we're gonna do is go to the bar and try to pick up girls, I'm not about that, I'm about something else. I asked my mom before, I says, mom, because she, she used to always talk to me about moral values. And, and I used to get scared when my mom would talk about living right. And I said to her one time, when I was a little boy, I says, mom, if I do the right thing, does that mean I have to leave my friends? And she says, no, baby, you ain't never gotta do that. Always respect your friends and treat them with compassion. But if you commit to living right and your friends aren't interested in supporting what's right, they'll leave you. They'll leave you. So live in such a way that people can't stand being around you and they will leave or they will be drawn to stay near your energy because they will say, man, I'm not ready yet, but this brother's got something that I want to keep close and continue representing for your friend the belief in his possibilities, even if he himself doesn't see those possibilities. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give to another human being is you can stand in their presence and you can just exude energy towards them that says, I believe in something more for you in the most respectful way, even if you don't believe in it. I think about St. Augustine, whose mother, St. Monica, we have a school, St. Monica, she was a very religious woman and she would pray for her son, St. Augustine. And one day she asked St. Augustine to pray and St. Augustine said the following prayer because he was a player. He said, Lord, make me chaste, but not quite yet. St. <laughs> Augustine went on to become one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. He went on to become a very influential thinker, and we say saint before his name because he was a very noble man. Human beings have a radical capacity to reinvent themselves, even if in the present moment they are irritating us now. Don't try to convert your friend. Continue to live in a compelling way. Love him, and when you need to, love him from a distance. That's the best thing that you can do for him. Yeah. Thanks a lot, man. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Um, I appreciate it. TK, I'm glad that car didn't take you away, man. Amen. Mm. We love you. We're grateful for you. And man, it's all, uh, it's all bonus time after this. Ladies and gentlemen, TK Coleman. Yeah. Love y'all. You're the fucking best, dude. Look, we, we all come from different places. And I don't know where you're going after this, but you decided to spend this time with us tonight. And I'm so grateful for that. If you leave here tonight with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chicago. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it 